All right, if you got your Bibles, let's open to Acts 17. Acts 17, uh, and then uh, also to 1 Samuel 30, and then we're going to look at a couple of passages in Luke, Luke chapter 4, and then also Luke chapter 15. Um, as you guys are flipping that direction, I want to give you another couple of quick uh, just, uh, just nods. So something pretty cool has been happening. The last six weeks in our church, uh, we've been able to baptize 22 different people uh, in the last uh, several weeks, and so very exciting times. And today, uh, we've got three more to baptize, meaning it'll be 25 people in six weeks uh, that we've seen follow the Lord in baptism. You just need to know, uh, not just for a church that's only seven years old, uh, for any church, uh, that's a pretty special thing and special time to get to be involved with. And so the Spirit is moving. Uh, for some of you, you'd be like, man, I need to get baptized. Well, there will be water in the tank today. And so if you want to sneak over at the end of the third service, I just know we'll be offering baptisms at that point. And so God is up to something pretty special in our days, uh, and it's a very exciting time. All right, our study today starts with this question. Uh, have you ever warned someone on something that they were clueless about? Have you ever warned someone on something, but specifically that they were clueless about, that they didn't know uh, was going on? I can tell you for me personally, um, if they have an idea, I mean, it doesn't quite shock them the same way, but if you warn some, somebody about something that they truly had no idea about, there's a level of shock that comes with that where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the response is going to be. Sometimes it's, it's again, it's shock. Sometimes it's disbelief. They just want to tell you, no, you're wrong right? You ever had that before? I mean, they look at you like, no, there's no way. Or sometimes it's panic. They just want to run, you know, or they just want to do something else. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's just blissful ignorance. You know what I mean? Where you tell them you need to be concerned about this. And they're like, okay, you know, whatever. I'll think about that. And then it hits them an hour later, like what just happened, right? Um, my background is sociology and history. That's why I studied at college. And, uh, um, for me personally, one of the best sociological examples of what happens when big information comes and how we come to terms with the, the heaviness of the moment is when you watch the clips we've been watching recently uh, in the, with the anniversary of 9-11 that had come up. When you watch President Bush, then President Bush receive the news while he's at the school reading to the small children. It's so interesting because all of us are receiving the information the same way at the same time that a plane has flown into the side of one of the buildings and immediately the thought is, well, surely nobody would do this on purpose. The thought is that it's an accident. And all of a sudden, when the second tower is hit, it changes the entire perspective of everything, but you watch it. President Bush kind of is all of us in that moment receiving the information and then you watch him. He starts to kind of twitch. He starts to be concerned. And then all of a sudden it's, hey, I got to get out of here. We got to figure out what's taking place and what we need to do next. In the passage of scripture that we're reading, Acts 17, Paul is showing up to a group of people who have never heard the name Jesus before ever. And he stands up in the high court, the high religious court in the area of Pagos, and he presents to them, there's one God. And he says to them, you all pretty much know there's just one God. You realize that it's not all these gods and goddesses. You can even climb to the top of Mount Olympus and realize that there are no gods and goddesses living up there. He says to the people, you realize that there's form and function to the universe that scream the existence of a God, and yet all these multiple gods don't actually exist. And then we find at the end, he says, and he sent his son, Jesus, so that we might be forgiven and we might be saved. 
But we find in this passage there are multiple reactions that happen from the crowd that he's speaking to, from the religious group that he's speaking to, and they receive this truth in different ways. Just like being warned about something that we were not anticipating. Some receive it well, and some do not receive it well. Look with me, if you will, at Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 22 and 23. It says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagos and said, Men of Athens, underline men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. And then after that, he stands up and does this amazing message. We walked through it last week where he proves the existence of one God and then follows that up by saying he sent his son Jesus. Look at verse 31. It says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. What starts with the defense of Almighty God turns into a gospel presentation. Paul does an amazing job with that. Because he has the message, his goal was not just to prove the existence of God to this religious group. His goal was to make sure that the name Jesus was spoken. If you're taking notes, write this down. Part of having faith is your willingness to share it. Let me say that again. Part of having faith is your willingness to share it. Paul has been asked to go on record in a discussion of Almighty God, and he comes up and says, you got to know Jesus. He is the reason we can be saved and forgiven. I'll never forget the first time that I got to speak um, in an international setting. Um, I had a, a pastor who uh, I was mentoring me at the time, did a wonderful job uh, kind of exposing me to, to different uh, uh, ministry overseas. And I remember I'm about 26 years old, and he takes me and a group of, uh, of young ministers, and we went over to Brazil. And uh, it was amazing. First time I'd gotten to preach in the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm telling you, the Spirit is alive and well uh, in what's happening in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. It was so special. And uh, we're watching God do amazing things. Well, they had booked me to speak at this big event called Salabra Sorocaba, all right? The Sorocaba Celebration. Now, Sorocaba is a town of about 600,000 total people, 650,000 people. And uh, the event, uh, Pastor Eduardo was putting the event on, but he had heard, hey, we got this young preacher. Uh, my pastor had said, I think Zach's going to be ready for this. If you've ever spoken with a translator before, it's intense because you're speaking in about four to five word segments, and then you're waiting for the person to translate. And really, you're trusting that the concepts are being, uh, are being portrayed. It's one of the reasons why it can go really, really well because the Spirit intercedes, or it can go really, really bad. And so I remember it. At the time, I was so nervous. I'd never done it before. And uh, when I get nervous, one of the ways y'all can steal this if you want to, if I've got to speak at an event where I'm being translated or at a funeral, I typically script on a yellow legal pad, just like this. I script the first four to six minutes of the, st of the talk because I want to make sure I get the flow right and I start to say it correctly. In fact, with a funeral, you want to make sure that you don't like tell the person's life story wrong. You know what I mean? And so again, very important to, to script that out and make sure that you tell it the right way. And so 
uh, that day, I've written it out, what I'm going to say, and I was so nervous. I was like, how do you begin this? How do you start this discussion with people who don't speak the same language that you do? And I was studying Acts 17, and I read through where Paul says, men of Athens. That's the way that he begins the addressing of the group. And so I sit down and wrote down on my pad, people of Sorakaba. And so that was the way I began the deal. So I stand up, I walk up, the crowd is there, packed room, and I walk up and I hit the pulpit and I go, people of Sorakaba. And all of a sudden the translator's like, oh, and he says in Portuguese, people of Sorakaba. Well, then we go through, go back and forth. And at the end of the service, it was amazing. Had people come forward to be saved, which again, with a translated message is really showing that the power of the spirit had moved. It was so special and such a neat time. I mean, we just were, were just floored with the way that it responded. Well, I'll never forget at the end, I see Pastor Eduardo talking to one of his leadership team members. And they're over there and they're kind of laughing. And I just walked over again. Everything's done. It's my first time I've ever done a message like this you know, with a translator. And I walk over and I go, Eduardo, what did you think? And then he and the leader looked and they go, people of Sorakaba. And they, they became like this big running gag. And so they were like, yeah, well, you did it. Act 17. They're like, you don't have to address us that way, you know, next time you come in. <laughs> I think it shows, just, just being honest, I think it shows for Paul, Paul was probably nervous. Paul's in this situation and he doesn't want to mess it up. He wants to get their attention from the very beginning and he doesn't want to mess up this presentation of the gospel. And yet, he also wants to portray to them, this is really, really important. This is what I believe. This is who I am. And the salvation and forgiveness are available to you as well. When we go public with the gospel, it's a pretty big deal. In big settings or small settings. If you're taking notes, that's the big million dollar question we're going to address today. What should we expect when we go public with the gospel? What should we expect when we go public with the gospel? Over the last three weeks, we've talked about Paul getting to Athens. Uh, we've talked about Paul gaining the respect uh, of the people in the marketplace, him getting to speak on the Acropolis at the Areopagos uh, to defend our faith before all these different religious leaders in a pagan city. And now in verses 32 through 34, we're about to get the reviews of what happened through that experience. What can we expect when going public with the gospel? Let's read the reviews that are given to Paul in Acts 17, starting in verse 32. Here's what it says. It says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Underline whatever words you have there for sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now stop right there for just a minute. Paul has presented the gospel, and we have two separate responses that take place in the response. The first is, there are some that receive the message, and they decide, we want to hear you again on this. We want to hear you out. This is very interesting to us. But there's another group, when they hear the same message, and it says they sneer. Now, just for the record, there's a difference between sneer and cringe. Cringe means that you have this kind of involuntary response to the information that's been given to you. Sneer is a little bit different. Sneer is something you do, not just at the message, but you sneer at the person that's presenting the message as well. For them to sneer means that they are saying to Paul, we not only discard your message, but we also discard you as a credible source of that message. Now listen to me. If you're taking notes, write this down. What should we expect when we go public with the gospel? Number one is mixed reviews. 
Expect mixed reviews when you share the gospel. There are going to be people who receive it well, and then there are going to be people who do not receive it well. In fact, it happens right now because we have our office space right across the street. I've got my office over in the, in the kids' space. I've got a little 100 square feet over there. That's my little domain. And here's the deal. I, I regularly will make the walk from my office during the week to here. And can I tell you what happens? If I'm carrying my Bible, from there to here, I get sneers and I get thumbs up. There are some people when they see me carrying my Bible, and I'm telling you, there's a thumbs up as I walk through, or sometimes they'll purse their lips and just do one of those. It's a sign there of them going, brother, I'm with you. I get sneers on that same walk every stinking time. It's just part of living in this city, right? We get into trouble when we make the decision that we will only share the gospel if it is unanimously received. Do you ever see the movie Cool Runnings? It's one of my favorite little movies. Remember Cool Runnings? Cool Runnings is a good picture of this. Sometimes we have this picture in our head when we look at sharing the gospel. You have this picture in your head like Cool Runnings. You remember the end of the movie? By the way, you had like 40 years to see it, all right? So just, I'm going to spoil it for you. Remember the end of Cool Runnings? They've just done the sled race, but the sled breaks, falls over on the side. It's about 100 yards from the end. And remember, they've been battling against all these different countries. They're the first Jamaican bobsled team to come in to compete. And do you remember? The sled's over, and then all of a sudden, Doris, the captain, stands up and goes, I have to finish the race. You remember that? That beautiful scene? They lift up the sled. They start to walk it towards the finish line. It's this beautifully human moment that takes place. Do you remember who their rivals were the whole movie? The Swiss, right? The ones who've been sledding since they were kids. The Swiss. And what do they do? The Swiss leader, the Swiss captain, all of a sudden as they're carrying, noticing the human moment, you watch it. The Swiss captain goes. Starts the slow clap, right? All of a sudden, all the other competitors notice it's a beautifully human moment. They start to clap too. The father, who had been ashamed of the son who was on the bobsled team, shows that he's got his Jamaican support shirt on. He starts to clap. And then the old coach from John Candy, uh, who for longer reasons than I want to give you today during this sermon, he even decides, you know what? I'm going to give them a round of applause too. Everybody's clapping. Slow clap. Listen to me. That doesn't happen when you share your faith. There's no slow clap. There's no slow clap where they go, you know what, they're right. Let's all applaud. For you optimists, a lot of times you don't want to share your faith unless it leads to a slow clap moment. Paul gets mixed reviews. Paul goes on record with the gospel and there are some that sneer and then there are some that receive it. You don't share the gospel for praise for men or women. We share the gospel because it is the truth. Now, just for the record, not going to let you realists, negative people, off the hook either. <laughs> because some of you expect the slow clap, and some of you expect like it is an atomic bomb that you drop on the group that's going to decimate and everyone is going to hate you. And so you go, I'm not sharing the gospel because they're all going to hate me. They're all going to laugh at me. Your picture is not the slow clap. Yours is the slow laugh that breaks out through the group. Can I just tell you, I have not been a part of many situations where there was a slow laugh that broke out either. Do you know why? Because the spirit and truth tugs on people's hearts in different ways. There's mixed reviews. You ever heard this before? The truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable. You ever heard that? 
Jesus is the one who says, you shall know the truth and, you, and the truth will set you free. I can't remember who the commentator was, but there's another commentator that said, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. When someone takes the time to sneer at you, I've gotten to the point now where I'm old enough and have shared the gospel long enough, I sit there and I go, they don't know what to do with me. I've shared that message with them. They know that there's an element of truth to it, and they don't know what to do with me. They've never heard it presented in this specific way. And the Spirit does the heavy lifting, and you got to know you were called to share the message, and the Spirit's going to do the heavy work, the tough work. Mixed reviews, mixed reviews need to be expected when we go public with the gospel. When you think about Pentecost, 3,000 people added to their number that day in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember the way the story of Pentecost goes? 3,000 are added to their number in a single day. But there's a whole other group that goes, yeah, they're just drunk. You remember that? When you read Acts 2, one group says, it's the power of Almighty God. I can hear the scripture for the first time in my native language. I can hear the gospel message in my native tongue from one person speaking to an entire group. And the rest of them go, yeah, they're just drunk. When the gospel is presented, when truth goes forth, we need to know that there are going to be mixed reviews. If you're taking notes, write this down. The introduction of the gospel ignites partnership and opposition. Be prepared for both. Let me say that again. The introduction of the gospel ignites partnership and opposition. Be prepared for both. Years ago, um, when I was a really, really young minister, um, I worked at a church, wonderful church. Uh, they had wanted to reach younger families. This was an older congregation. And I remember they took out a loan for $100,000 to build a new playground on the property. The idea was, again, they needed to put money into reaching uh, young families if they were going to try to reach them. And so uh, they put $100,000 into this playground. It was a really big deal because the church's budget was not that large. And uh, I'll never forget, um, the first week that the playground was open... I was preaching that Sunday night, and nobody came to Sunday night church. If y'all come from a situation with Sunday night where you do a different service Sunday morning and Sunday night, for the most part, people just don't come. And so this was one of those where it was about 10% of the Sunday morning congregation that would come on Sunday nights. And so um, in the middle of the service, a family comes in off the street and sits down at the back. Again, it was such a small room, again, that it was very noticeable. And so the family comes in, sits down, and I remember I'm preaching, and then after the service at the end, this family comes down, and a couple of people in the family prayed to receive Christ that night. It was so powerful, the Spirit moved. Afterwards, I said to them, I said, tell me how you found our church. How'd you just happen? And they were like, well, we saw the new playground out front. We brought our kids to play, and they said we could hear the music through the wall that a service was going on. And so we just wandered in and wanted to be part of the service. And so after that was over, I'm telling the pastor of the church that story. And he goes, oh, that's awesome. You got to come to deacons meeting and share that story too. And I walk in before the deacons group, share the story. Look, check it out. We put the money towards this playground. We reached people and now they're walking through the doors right here. And I'll never forget the insurance agent for the church was also part of the deacon body. And after I shared that, there was a group that applauded. It wasn't a slow clap. It was a quick clap. They applauded and were so excited. And then all of a sudden, the insurance agent stood up and said, and that's why we need to lock the playground. 
And we were like, what? And he goes, it's an insurance hazard. It'll revoke our insurance that we have. And it's why we should lock the playground. And I'll never forget watching that because it was like, this was something that I felt like should have been celebrated. And I do see that he was the one specifically carrying the liability for that moment. But it wasn't, you needed to celebrate in the moment. It wasn't something that just needed to be completely decimated. Even the stuff that seems like a no-brainer, you need to know not everybody's going to celebrate it. It takes a lot of courage to stand up here and preach to you guys. You know why? Because every stinking word that comes out of my mouth, there's between half and two-thirds of you that receive it. And then there's between one-thirds and half that go, I don't know if I can follow you on that, Pastor. How much courage it takes to stand up here and to do that week after week? You don't need to feel sorry for me. I'm just telling you, what you're going through, all of us in the faith go through. You share it because it's who you are, because it's in you, because we have the keys to eternal life. It begs the question, are you irrationally expecting a unanimous reception? Let me say it again. Are you irrationally expecting a unanimous reception? It's not going to be a slow clap where everyone celebrates. And it's not going to be a slow laugh where everyone makes fun of you. When we share the gospel, truth goes out and the spirit moves on our behalf. Now we'll flip back to Acts 17 and let's look at verse 33. We got a really short verse here that's really special. You ready for this? Look at Acts 16, 33. Starts off by saying again, we want to hear you again on the subject. Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. Underline and highlight that simple but really special verse. At that, Paul left the council. I love that it says, we want to hear from you again on the subject. And it says, at that, Paul left. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world would Paul leaving here be such a big deal? Can I tell you why? Paul was a brilliant man. Paul had a great mind for theology, and I can guarantee you, Paul had an appreciation for Athens. As a learned man, as a defender of the faith, I'm telling you, to be able to stand in that religious room that probably was so much like the Pharisee school that Paul taught in for so long, for him to walk in and be around those great theological minds and to defend the name of Jesus, I can guarantee you, there was maybe a little tug in Paul's heart that maybe, just maybe, God was calling him to sit on the council in the seat of prestige to defend the gospel in Athens. They look at him and they go, Paul, stick around. Maybe if you hang out a little bit, maybe one of these stone seats will be yours where you can defend the faith in this beautiful setting, in this beautiful place where you can have influence like you couldn't have in the marketplace. At that Paul left the council. What a powerful picture, especially for us in this city. If you're taking notes, what should we expect when we go public with the gospel? Number one is mixed reviews. And number two is temptation to compromise the message. Temptation to compromise the message. Was there anything wrong with sitting on the Areopagos? There was nothing wrong if that's what God had in store for Paul. But it was not Paul was to plant churches throughout the known world. And Paul was, again, to write and to strengthen these churches. And this was not the spot for him personally to be. It was a temptation. Something interesting happens after you share the gospel with people. When they can't destroy the message, a lot of times what they do, if they can't shoot down the message and what you've defended, 
then what they do is they turn their focus from God to you. And they try to rip the messenger apart because if they can rip the messenger apart, then they don't have to take the message as something that was true. Now, here's the deal. None of us is perfect. None of us does it all right all the time. But we have to know that when we share the message and the Spirit moves, they are then going to look at us and see what it looks like to live as a Christian. Over the years, this kind of happens. I'll share the gospel. Someone will receive it. And then there will be one specific sin that they can feel they know is wrong on the inside. And what they typically will do almost right after their salvation experience is they'll turn and say, hey, do you want to go and do this thing with me? that I know is sinful, that they know is sinful. But if the person who led them to Christ can affirm that sin or can affirm that action or can go with them on that issue, then guess what? They can check it off in their head as, oh, I guess it's okay for Christians to do this thing. You've got to remember, we've got to expect when we go public with the gospel, mixed reviews, but then there is temptation to compromise the message and we have to fight against that as well. If you're taking notes, write this down. Godly leaders must remember that their calling to be the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of God is far more important than the seat of influence they could sit in. He said again, godly leaders must remember that their calling to be the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of God is far more important than the seat of influence that they could sit in. I want to share with you a passage from this book. It's one of my favorite little books. It's called The Preacher and the Presidents, uh, and it's the story of Billy Graham and just the ministry that he got to have uh, up on Capitol Hill and specifically in the White House. And uh, uh, it's just an interesting story. Um, there's part of uh, one that I want to read to you today uh, that comes from uh, a story that he talks about uh, when a rich Texas oil man who had been funding Lyndon Johnson said that he wanted to fund Billy Graham's uh, uh, candidacy in running for president. And so uh, here's what it says uh, kind of through that story. Again, you have this opportunity where for Billy Graham, he had to think, man, this could be an incredible amount of influence. So here's what it says. It says, during his Los Angeles crusade the previous fall, a high-level Republican strategy session was said to have discussed the merits of a Billy Graham candidacy for president. Not least that his crusade infrastructure and mailing list would provide an excellent grassroots foundation for any White House bid. And they made their case to him directly. Graham said he got telegrams from Republicans saying that they would pledge their delegates to him if he ran. By that winter, it had been rumored for months that he caught the eye of the widely rich Texas oil man, H.L. Hunt, an aging billionaire curmudgeon uh, in a clip-on bow tie. Though a longtime backer of Lyndon Johnson's, Hunt allegedly told Grady Wilson that he would deposit as much as $6 million into Graham's personal bank account if he would agree to have his name floated for the GOP nomination. Friends said it took about 15 seconds for, Jam, or for Graham to reject that idea flat out. Here's what it says at the end. This is interesting. All of a sudden, there was all this stir in the media and hostility. It says, but their hostility was nothing compared to Ruth's, Billy Graham's wife. She called and informed her husband, if you run, I don't think the country will elect a divorced president. That's what she said. <laughs> His father-in-law was next. He said, you should hold a press conference right now, right this minute, and tell them. Billy Graham said, I said, it's midnight here. I can't do it right now. But he did the next morning. And then this was his quote. If nominated, I will not run, Graham declared. If elected, I will not serve. God called me to preach. 
share that story to say this. Anybody told we would back you, we would do this for you, just compromise on this one thing. Is it wrong for anyone to run? No. Would it have been wrong for Billy Graham to run? I think the answer is yes. Absolutely. As a defender of the gospel, as one who was called to preach, it absolutely would have been the wrong and ungodly decision. For some of you, you got to remember, when you share the gospel and go public with it, the enemy's going to try to get you on little things to get you to compromise so that not the message, but your personal witness will be whittled away in front of that individual so that they can justify sin that they want to get into. You see this, by the way, in the way that the enemy even tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Remember, Jesus is hungry. He's not had anything to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And you remember, it says he's hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, hey, you're Jesus. You're the son of God. You've got all power. Take these stones and turn them into bread. I know you're hungry. God knows you need food. Just turn them into bread. Jesus fires back with scripture. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of the mouth of God. Do you remember? He then calls him up and says, hey, Jesus, how about this? There's one point where he takes him up to a high temple and says, hey, how about this? I know you're hungry. I know your mind's not probably firing on all cylinders at this point, but why don't you just throw yourself off of this temple and then the angels will catch you. The Lord's not going to let you fall. Why don't you just do that? Why don't you just bow before me? And then all the nations of the world will be yours. Time after time, the enemy hits him, trying to get him to go just a little bit because that one move, that one bit of compromise that truly is not compromise in a small way, but it ruins ruins the entire mission. We've got to be strong enough to remember when we go public with the gospel, there are going to be mixed reviews, but there also is going to be temptation to acknowledge and affirm things that scripture does not acknowledge or affirm. Now, just for the record, there's stuff you're going to have to do in your jobs. I know how it is to work a government job, but you got to make sure that for you and your path, when you share the gospel, that you personally are not compromising to that temptation. It begs the question, has keeping your seat of influence become more important than submitting to God's leading? Has keeping your seat of influence become more important than submitting to God's leading? Now, sometimes when I say things about a seat in this setting, you can think of the literal seat that's a mile up the hill. I'm talking about each and every one of you have these seats of influence in your families, in your place of business, in your community, or even here in the church. We got to make sure we don't compromise just so we can keep the stone seat. Don't compromise the message so that you can keep the spot that you're sitting in. Now look at the last part. This is a beautiful end to the story. And we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Verse 34, it says, A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysus. Underline Dionysus a member of the Areopagos. Underline a member of the Areopagos. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Underline a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Let's stop right there for just a minute. When you study Pentecost, 3,000 saved on one day, it's a truly miraculous moment. When you study Philippi, the Riverside Bible study in Philippi that turns into a citywide revolution. When you study Berea, again, the awakening of that Berean row in the church. All these powerful leaders that come from that setting, Thessalonica. And here in Athens, 
it says that there were two of note, Dionysus and Damaris. I want to encourage you. We have to come to a point where we value the mission for one as much as the mission for many. You see, Dionysus was a very special character. You know what Dionysus meant? Dionysus was the name of the god of the feast or the party. In fact, very specifically, Dionysus was the god of wine. Isn't that interesting? Dionysus here sits on the area of Pagos, defends a false religion, and has been named after the god of the spirit of wine, the god of the party. You see, Paul was sent specifically so that this individual might have a chance and it would affect change all throughout the city and all throughout what was taking place there in that portion of the world. In fact, this is so cool too. The woman named Damaris, did you know that we partner with a ministry in Athens called Damaris House that is named specifically after this saint woman, uh, this woman in this circumstance that came to Christ as her Lord and Savior? We still to this day are reaping the benefits of what Paul did in Athens and we are continuing the work that's taking place there. If you're taking notes, write this down. What should we expect when we go public with the gospel? Number one, mixed reviews. Number two, temptation to compromise the message. And number three, a few life-changing conversations. A few life-changing conversations. You see in this passage, it wasn't about doing another Pentecost. God had sent specifically Paul to shepherd Dionysus and Damaris because the Lord's heart is not just for the group. The Lord's heart is for the individual. It's not one or the other. It's why in Luke 15, Jesus says that we are to, the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. It doesn't mean that you don't care about the 99. It just means simply that the one is as important as the other 99 that are out there. If you're taking notes, write this down. Paul was not sent to Athens to bring about another Pentecost. He was sent to redeem Dionysus and Damaris. He said again, Paul was not sent to Athens to bring about another Pentecost. He was sent to redeem Dionysus and Damaris. When we first were about to plant Waterfront, in the beginning, I'm telling you, it's been a little bit easier to raise money and to raise support this stretch because there is an actual church, okay? You got to remember in the beginning, there was no church. It was just me telling people, hey, I think God wants to do this. We pitched the idea, but some of you entrepreneurs in this room know that feeling too. You have this idea of what could be, but again, others are trying to kind of wrap their head around it, and for them to decide to invest in it is a pretty big deal. And so I'll never forget, I called several of my ministry friends and said, hey, is there anybody that would be interested in hosting a waterfront church event? Remember, the church is negative one year old at this point. I said, is there anyone who would want to host a waterfront event and let me present about the gospel? And so I present about what we want to do. Well, my buddy Keith Baldridge, uh, who, is, uh, uh, who was the college minister at Indiana Avenue Baptist Church at the time, um, Keith goes, hey, the church doesn't want to do it, but my college ministry would like for you to come in and do this. And Indiana's been a great uh, uh, partner for us. Uh, but in this particular deal, the whole church wasn't really invited. It was, it was more just, again, this, this group of college students that showed up for the event. We were hoping that citywide we'd get a couple hundred people to show up for this one. And when the day of the event came, it was 15 people in the room. 
And so I remember I walk out and Autumn is just like, what are you going to do? You know, because I, mean, I have this like big portrayal. We've got like slides and things like that, all these everything. She's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm just going to do what I was going to do. You know, at this point, it doesn't seem like it'd be a good idea to switch. And so I said, we're just going to present and we'll see what happens. Again, the idea that we've talked about, you're called to share the message and then you put it in the hands of God for the response. Well, at that particular event, was a young woman named Bailey Taylor at the time. Now you know her as Bailey Dover, all right? Her husband Austin's right here, all right? Now here's the deal. Bailey was a college student at the time and had just taken an internship that she was going to have in Washington, D.C. She's one of the 15 that are there. On the back of the program was an email address and my cell phone number. That's how desperate we were. I put my own cell phone number on those deals. And I remember we're here in D.C. We've been here for just a matter of days. And I'm sitting at Lot 38 Coffee Shop across the way. Autumn and the kiddos are over here at the 100 Capitol Yards where we lived. And I remember I'm sitting there and just praying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And that first week here in D.C., like I had always had things I was supposed to do for my job. And that first week was so crazy because it was like, I don't have anything to do, right? I mean, there was all this stuff that could happen. But at the time, we didn't know anybody. And I'm sitting there praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And all of a sudden, my cell phone starts to buzz. It's Bailey. Bailey says, hey, I saw this number on the back of the brochure. Do you remember you presented about Waterfront Church at Indiana Avenue? And I was like, yes. She goes, is there anything that you need help with? I don't know anybody in the city and would love to get to spend some time. Bailey and Austin would then get married. They've been in leadership. They teach a class here at Waterfront, been with us for seven full years. Now listen to me. You present and you have no idea what life-changing conversation is going to take place that ends up being foundational. That same day, Keith was the one who had hosted the meeting. Keith's the college minister at Indian Avenue. And I remember when I get done, I was like, well, I guess that's it. And Keith goes, uh, can I talk to you privately? I said, yeah, sure. You okay? He goes, I just want to do it privately. We sneak into the back room and he goes, um, I want to talk to you about church planting. The reason he wanted to be discreet about it is because you don't want your current job to know that you're thinking about starting a church, right, if you work at a church. He sneaks me in the back, and he goes, you think I could plant the church? I said, absolutely, man. I said, I think it'd be awesome. He goes, all I could think of the entire time you were talking is that maybe, just maybe, God was calling us to do the same thing. Keith planted a church in Broomfield, Colorado called Living Stone Church. Livingstone baptized 22 people in the last couple of weeks in Broomfield, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Not only that, but they've had 350 people in attendance, and it's been a different road for Keith, but man, it has been so powerful, the perseverance they've shown. He says to me at the end of that meeting, you're the first person I've ever talked to about this. I feel like I could share it with you because of what you shared with us. Now listen, when did we start feeling like unless we got a certain percentage of return, that the gospel wasn't worth putting out. The Lord governs the heavenly return, and we've got to remember he values the one as much as the number 99. Each life is a life. Each soul is a soul. He doesn't view it as, well, it's not worth my time. You've got to remember this. The same God that sent Paul to the Riverside Bible study in Philippi, sent Paul to Dionysus, sent Paul 
to Damaris, gave Paul favor so that he could speak in the area of Pagos because he cared for those individuals so very much. It begs the question, do you value the mission for one as highly as the mission for many? Do you value the mission for one as highly as the mission for many? It's a funny thing. We do talk about numbers quite a bit around here as a church. Do you know why? Look around you. We talk about numbers because of fire code probably more than any other reason. We got to make sure you guys have a seat. One of the commitments that we've made since the beginning of Waterfront is that we would try our very, very best to never, ever, ever turn anybody away. When you look at numbers from that perspective, again, I don't think that that's an ungodly thing. When you decide whether or not doing the right thing is profitable because it could benefit one versus a larger group, that, my friends, is where you get into some pretty dark territory. We got to make sure we value the one as much as the 99. Why? Because God does. Because that's his heart as well. For some of you today, maybe that is a voice of conviction to you. You don't just need to share the gospel when you know it has maximum return. You need to share the gospel anytime the Spirit calls for it. Thanks for listening today. That thus concludes Paul and the Hill, all right? We're going to run him out of town somewhere else next, all right? That'll be next week. Now, don't tune out. The best part of the service is right here in these next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer.